right, everyone open up your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, it is in the New Testament. You have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The book of Acts, which details early church history. And then you have the book of Romans. Yeah. So the study of Romans is in Romans? Correct. Correct. Deep. You just spoiled the twist ending to my entire message. Thanks a lot, Jake. Romans chapter 1. Tonight we begin our new study into this awesome book. I've subtitled this God's Playbook for Righteousness. It is, after all, football season. Many of you, or some of you are involved in football. Some of you are no longer involved in football. (laughs) So I figured, you know what? When we look at the book of Romans as a a whole, it really is God's playbook. It has everything outlined, all of the details of what you need for righteousness. And really, it's the main theme. If you needed to summarize the book in one word, the word is righteousness. And so this week and over the weeks to come, for the months to come, we're going to go over this book because, man, I'm telling you guys what, it is chock full. Anything you needed to know about the Christian faith, you'll find it in this book. Let's take a look at the introduction. The book of Romans marks the beginning of the church letters in the Bible. I mean, really, it is. I already mentioned, after the book of Acts, you have these letters that Paul is writing to the rest of these churches that make up a bulk of our New Testament. Because of this, the book really lives up to its name as the driving force of the New Testament. The the name of Rome itself literally translates to strength. That's what Rome means. It means strength. It means power. It indicates a driving force. Once again, for those of you who play or used to play football, what happens when you are in possession of the ball and you have a series of plays to get you to the end zone? What is that called? No. A drive. Thank you. Thank you. Noah, the one who's still involved in football. A foul ball! It's called a drive. It is the series of plays to get you to your goal or the end zone. You guys follow? Yes. That's why this is the driving force of the New Testament. Everything you need to know is found in this book. Continuing. Here the Apostle Paul gives a complete and thorough breakdown concerning all the foundational truths of the Christian faith. It details the doctrines of salvation, sanctification, what's that? Adoption, what on earth does adoption have to do with this book? Judgment, the past, present, and future of the nation of Israel, and our relationship to those around us. And guys, that's just scratching the surface. This book gets deep. And we're going to cover a lot more than just those things, but just to give you a little taste and a glimpse of what's to come. In every chapter and every topic, we are given God's viewpoint on what He is doing in and through the church. And that's what makes this God's perfect playbook for revealing, establishing, and applying righteousness. I've titled tonight's message, as we cover chapter 1, Barbaric Faith. And the reason for that is because barbaric, or the the word barbarian, it's not really a term that we use anymore. But does anybody know what that word means? Conan. No, not Conan the Barbarian. It actually means foreign. 
It, it indicates foreigner. It's someone who is not belonging to a specific place or to a, a specific set of ideals. And that'll make more sense next week as we cover chapter 2. But tonight we're going to focus on barbaric faith and what that actually means. So you guys have your Bibles open a number, or to Romans chapter 1. Point number one on your outline, we're going to, man, just shotgun this thing right out of the gate. We're going to see here in chapter 1 the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. Because that's something that we all have to realize, we all have to understand, and especially for you guys who are active in your schools with Bible studies or with wanting to share your faith with others in Christ to your friends, is that there's a misconception that a lot of people have in Christianity today that the Bible is just this vast book that no one can really know unless you go off to a four-year seminary college degree and you get trained up by all these people who've studied the original Hebrew and the original Greek. And unless you have a knowledge and a base understanding of those things, you can't understand the Bible. Believe it or not, this is a very common practice and a common misconception or a very common uh, doctrine that is presented in churches today. The problem is, it's not true. God wrote the Bible to reveal Himself to mankind because He wants everybody to have a working knowledge of the Bible. He wants everybody to know who He is. And if He wants everyone to know who He is, naturally speaking... He wants people to know, what is righteousness? How does one become righteous? What are the requirements thereof? And right here, in the very opening chapter, He reveals what righteousness truly is. So with that in mind, can I get a reader for the first seven verses of this chapter? Everybody have their Bibles open up, following along. Who wants to read? He already prayed. Andy's spoken enough. Kendall. Verses 1 to 7. Everyone follow along with us. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, for those of you who have been around in this ministry for a little while, I always say it whenever we're reading like an introduction. But typically when it comes to these church letters in the New Testament, man, the introduction is usually like the most boring part of the entire book if I'm being honest, because it's just a greeting. It's like a very long-winded greeting, and I am long-winded in and of myself, so if there's anybody here that knows long-windedness, it's me. And typically these greetings, it's like, oh, he has to salute this person, he has to say hi here and there, and it goes on and on forever, but man, I'm telling you guys what, if you were paying attention to when Kendall was reading there, this intro is chock full of goodies. And it starts with even just verse 1 when he says that, I, Paul, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle or a missionary, separated unto the gospel of God. Right out of the gate, he kickstarts this whole thing off in verse 1 by talking about the gospel. Now, all eyes up here. Can anybody tell me what the word gospel actually means? Jake? Isn't that like good news? Good news. Good tidings. I love it. When we think about good tidings, what do we think about? Anybody sing the song? 
Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The word gospel means good news. It means good tidings. And we always transfer this back to this passage with the birth of Jesus. That's what the word gospel means. That's where he kickstarts us off. On your outline here, we have in letter A, a faith that obeys the gospel. We got that in verse 5 as Kendall read it. Well, if you're going to obey the gospel like the Romans did, we should probably define what gospel actually is. So not only does it actually mean good news in point number 1, but we saw in verse 2 that this was promised all throughout the Old Testament. It wasn't just something that came up and all of a sudden this new religion of Christianity was formed and so people started following him. No, 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 no. This goes all the way back hundreds and thousands of years before Christ. Promised all throughout the Old Testament. I have Isaiah 40 verse 9 on here. Everybody read that okay? Okay, good. I was wondering if the font was too small. Plus the chalkboard background. Hey, it's cool. I gotta have it, gotta have it set up for... Back to school time. Isaiah 40 verse 9 says, O Zion, that bringest good tidings. Get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Gospel. Every time you see that phrase, think gospel. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Does anybody remember, has anybody read the gospels recently? Last year. Okay, do you guys remember what John the Baptist said when he was baptizing people and then all of a sudden he sees Jesus walking this way? Does anybody remember the phrase that he says when he saw him? What was his reaction? He said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold your God. This is Isaiah 40, verse 9. This is 700 years before Jesus was even born. And this verse is saying here, okay, well, I don't really see how that connects to Jesus, but we'll keep going. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth or printeth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation. Because remember, we just read in Luke chapter 2 that the Savior, that's one who saves, he's bringing forth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. And we continue, Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. I gotta tell you, if you're a prisoner, and you're bound to something, is it not good news to be set free from that? That's good tidings if you ask me. All throughout the book of Isaiah, you see verses like this that are talking about a coming day of a coming Savior who would deliver those who are bound and captive from prison. And you might be thinking, okay, that's only three verses in one book of the Old Testament. Well, let me balance something out here with a verse that's in the New Testament here. Luke 24, 27 says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he... If you look at the context of it, it's Christ. 
expounded unto them, two disciples, in all the scriptures, the things concerning who? Himself. Now, you know what's interesting about that? Do you know what book or books Moses wrote? Who could tell me? There's no book of Moses, per se, in your Old Testament, but he did author some books of the Bible. What is it? And then we wrote Genesis and Exodus. And Leviticus. And, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. The law, if you will. It says, beginning there, and all the prophets. That means all of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Malachi, I almost said Hezekiah, uh, Haggai, all of them. From the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, you have Jesus Christ opening up the Bible and showing these two disciples, hey, you see this little sacrificial lamb here that Abel offered up? It's a picture of me and what I just went through on the cross. Because in Luke chapter 24 here, this is after Christ had resurrected. And he's showing them that from the beginning all the way to Malachi. Malachi chapter 4 where it talks about the Son, the S-U-N of righteousness. And how Christ is called the only begotten S-O-N, Son. You see, this is promised all throughout the Holy Scriptures. And not only that, point three on your outline... What was promised all throughout the Old Testament? We just read it. But then he continues. He goes further. Look again at verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of who? According to what? The flesh. He continues in verse 4. And declared to be the son of who? God with power according to the spirit of holiness. So what was promised all throughout the Old Testament? Good news, but point number three, good news that the Savior of the world would be 100% God and 100% man. You see, it had to be through man because man screwed up this entire thing. At the beginning in Genesis, when God created man and female, male and female, they were in His image and they were perfect and he gave them one verse to memorize, and he gave them one command to follow, but they couldn't keep it. And so now sin came upon this planet. They lost that image and that fellowship with God the Father. And as a result of that, everyone that they made after that are in this fallen image, this fallen state. That's not in God's image anymore. And so God made a promise. It's the first recorded prophecy in all of the Bible in Genesis 3.15. When God looks at Eve and says, I am going to put my seed through her, this, my seed is going to come forth. A woman doesn't have a seed. And so the fact that he's saying, that God is saying to Eve that she is going to carry his seed down the road, it's speaking about a miraculous birth. He's 100% God. He wasn't born of a man, because if he was born of a man, then he would be imperfect. Jesus Christ would be flawed. But he's also born of David. Check out these passages here. He's 100% God and 100% man. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 to 6 say, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto who? Yeah, I see it. 
David, a righteous branch. What do you notice difference about, about that? It's capitalized. And a king, capital K, shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called. Check this out. You check this verse out in your Bible and it's all capitalized on there. I didn't add that. The Lord our what? Righteousness. Because here in chapter 1, God is revealing righteousness. He's revealing His righteousness. And He says not only will He be 100% God, but He's going to come through the lineage of David. And we know this from, uh, from uh, oh goodness, I'm blanking on it. I think it's Mary's side. Don't quote me on that. The, yeah, it is Mary's side. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the son of David, it called him. He's 100% God, yet he's 100% man. Well, how did he prove he was God? Well, we stopped reading in verse 4, but look at the second half of verse 4. According to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. On your outline, point number four. Through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, those in Rome who put their trust in Him by faith, they received grace. The grace we just read in verse 5. They received that grace. You guys know, want to know a great definition of the word grace? Before I show you the verse on the screen, I need a volunteer to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Dustin. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Man, if you want a simple definition of what the gospel is, this is kind of the in-depth definition here that Paul goes through in the first five verses and the first four points in your outline. It's good news promised all throughout the Old Testament that the Savior would be 100% God and 100% man, and that through His death, burial, and resurrection, those who put their faith and trust in Him receive grace. Are you a... 30 years ago. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't help no one gets the reference, Andy. Dustin, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. Go ahead and read that. Everyone follow along. Listen up. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye received wherein ye stand, but which also are ye saved, if ye keep in memory when I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered you unto, unto you first of all that are sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to our scriptures. That's a simple definition of the gospel. But what is this grace? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Jesus Christ, He's King. He has a throne in heaven that you read about. And He chose to leave that throne because He saw a sinful man in His sinful state and because He loves them so much, He didn't want to leave them that way. So He leaves His throne and He comes down here and becomes poor. That's one way to look at it, but another way is the fact that when He went to the cross, the Bible says He took on the sins of the entire world upon Himself. The Bible would say in an earlier chapter, chapter 5, that He took our unrighteousness and in exchange gave us His righteousness in the most unfair trade that has ever occurred 
on the face of the planet. That's what he means when he says that through his poverty, you might be made rich. And this is a faith that obeys the gospel, and Paul's commending them in the church of Rome for obeying that. But a faith that obeys the gospel and just stays there, what good is it? What good is it? It has to go beyond that. And that's why in letter B, Paul says that they have a faith that is recognized throughout the whole world. You see, the gospel is not just the end of the story, but it's the beginning. They knew what they believed, and they knew they had to grow. Can I get a reader for verses 8 to 12? Someone, anyone, that hasn't read already. Caleb. First, I thank you, my God, through Jesus Christ, for you all that your faith is spoken throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For long to, for I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end ye may be established. That is, that I am be comfort, comforted together with you by mutual faith, both of you and me. Caleb read at the end of verse 8 that their faith, those in Rome, their faith was spoken of throughout the entire world. Can the same be said of your faith? Has it just stayed with you? Has it just, has it just been revealed to you in a faith that you've obeyed, that you've obeyed and received that gift of grace? Or have you done something with it? That others can see, that others can testify there's something different about you, like Paul said to those in Rome. Because in point one, he said that after they received the gospel, they were established in the faith. That was verse 11 that Caleb read. He wanted to see them as such. What does it mean to be established? You read Acts 16 and you read 1 Thessalonians 3, it's talking about how they couldn't just keep it. They had to grow. They had to know this Bible. They had to read it. They had to spend time with God. They had to be together at church. They had to serve and work out their faith. It couldn't just stay in. They couldn't just keep it to themselves. And that's why in point number two, Paul instilled his life into them that they might grow to do the same for others. That's called the Great Commission. Taking the faith that you've received and establishing it and investing it into others that they might go and do the same. So right here in the first 12 verses, we have evangelism and discipleship, boom, served up on a platter. And those in Rome were commended and committed to doing the work. And they did a great job of it. But they realized, just as Paul was about to do by example... That faith, letter C, it demands action. It's not just enough to receive this gospel of grace. It's not just enough to have your faith known to others. No, you need to establish a pattern of doing it, of evangelizing and discipling and then repeating. Look at verses 13 to 15. I get a reader for that. Andy. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purpose to come unto you but was let hitherto, what I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. 
So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to, that, to you that are at Rome also. So he mentions three groups of people here. Who are they? Greeks. Greeks? Barbarians, Barbarians and? Rome. Huh? Rome. Gentiles. Gentiles. Well, Rome's a city. I meant three people groups. Romans. Well, he didn't say Romans. He said those in Rome. <laughs> you get participation points. I'll give that to you. <laughs> you know what's interesting about that? They're all three essentially the same thing. They're all Gentiles. Anybody know what a clear definition of a Gentile is? Anyone that's not a Jew. Hey, goodness, did you guys do this at school? Raise your hand and wait to be called on. <laughs> you're, you're done for the day. You've, you got your participation points. <laughs> Dustin? Exactly. That's the most simple definition. So here's the thing. If you are not Jewish, you are a Gentile. Does that, get, does that make sense? Yes. So everything he's about to say here, everything he's about to do here, he is specifically highlighting the Gentiles, the Greeks, the barbarians who are known as foreigners. Foreigners to the Jewish laws and customs. More on that next week. It's foreign to them. But he's about to speak something very, very specific to them. He calls himself a debtor. He's got this great payment he has to make to get as much of the gospel to the barbarians and to the Greeks and to the Gentiles as he possibly can before his time runs out. Because when you look at the book of Acts, when he was writing this, he didn't think he was ever actually going to get to the city of Rome. So he did the next best thing he could think to do and wrote a letter. There are people in your life that you might not be able to sit down one-on-one -on -one for an hour-long conversation with the Bible. Maybe they're a scoffer. Maybe they're ticked off at you. Maybe they don't want anything to do with God. And so they will not give you the time of day to sit down and be able to share Christ with them. Oh, well, just wash your hands and be done with it? Or is there maybe a different creative way you could think to get the gospel out? Paul's was to write a letter. And here we have that letter 2,000 years later, and we're studying it. And it just so happens to be one of the most powerful books in all of the New Testament. He didn't look at obstacles. He saw it as opportunities. He was a debtor to get as much of the gospel out to everyone. And I love it. Did you guys check at verse 15 again? Andy should have read it with a little bit more gusto, but he didn't, but it's okay, I'll forgive him. Verse 15, so as much as in me is, as much as everything that's within my being, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. So he's not just talking to those who have received the gift of grace anymore. He's talking to the barbarians, those who are a little bit foreign to the concepts of what he went through in the first opening verses. He leads by example, demonstrating, I'm on their outline now, point number one under letter C. Paul leads by example, demonstrating his desire for the Gentiles to hear the gospel. I have Acts 26, 17, 18 here. This is Paul speaking in the book of Acts. He said that God was telling him that his job is to deliver thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. 
You see, Peter, his mission was to the Jews. Paul's mission as the apostle was to go with the gospel to the Gentiles. And here's what his goal was in verse 18. To open their eyes and to turn them from the darkness to light. From the power of Satan unto God. That they, even the Gentiles, those who are foreigners to the promises of God found in the Old Testament, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by what? Faith that is in me. That was Paul's mission. And here he is fulfilling his mission. How are you doing? Many of you at camp this past summer made commitments that you put down on paper that God had stirred in your heart to do something very, very similar to what Paul is doing here. Here's the evidence of what he did. How's it going for you? A couple weeks in, and it seems as though it's been a rough start to the year from what I've gathered. Hard to transition back into from summer back into the fall. I got news for you. It's going to be like this till you graduate. And then when you graduate, it's just going to be something different that's going to be hard to transition into. It's going to be even harder to keep your commitments because then your commitments start coming not in the form of a camp that you go to every year. It just comes from your daily walk with God. And if you find yourself not hearing from Him as often to to be challenged and stirred in your spirit to make some big, huge statement, some big, huge commitment, then you might have need, as the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, you might have need to be taught again or discipled again. You might need to be re-discipled because something's wrong with your walk. We need to grow. Paul is sitting here challenging. He's fulfilling what he was called to do. And number two... Well, we haven't read it yet. Look at verse 16. What we're about to read in these two verses, it is the theme of the entire book of Romans, summed up in these two verses here. For I am not ashamed of the what? Gospel. Of Christ. For it, what? The gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God found. I had three markers up here. Where'd they go? You have the power of God. You have the righteousness of God. Both of which are being revealed right now. The power of God and the salvation is the gospel, and found therein is the righteousness of God. Revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Point two. He leads by demonstration to his desire to the Gentiles to hear the gospel, because found therein is God's power to save everyone who believes and trusts in his righteousness. So 1 Corinthians 1.18 says we are to preach that gospel because it's the power of God. That's the first half of the first chapter of Romans, where he's talking about the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. But it doesn't just start th stop there. Because he talks a lot about salvation. He talks a lot about Jesus being the Savior. That's what the good tidings that was coming was to be a Savior to come and to bring forth salvation 
to publish peace and to publish salvation, we saw in the Old Testament. But salvation from what? And that's where the second half of this chapter kicks off. Because he doesn't just talk about the power of God in verse 16. He doesn't just talk about the righteousness of God in verse 17. But he also, in verse 18, as we're about to read, talks about the wrath of God. Look with me in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Check out verse 19 and 20. We'll go with these and then we'll get back to the sheet. Besides that which may be known of God, or I'm sorry, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. All right, let's break this down. What does that all mean? One point number two, the righteousness of God revealing all of man's unrighteousness, in case you don't already have that blank. We see in letter A that God chose to use all of creation, everything you see out in nature. He chose to use that to reveal the majesty of who God is to all of mankind. Have you guys ever been out either witnessing at the mall or one of our events where we go out evangelizing? Have you ever guys had the question of like, man, you know what? I would go to church. I would follow the Bible. The one thing that just never made sense to me is how on earth could a loving God send somebody in the deepest, darkest jungle in the depths of Africa or one of the Pacific islands where no missionary has ever been, how could God send them to hell? You guys ever gotten that before? Mm-hmm. You ever had that presented to you by a teacher or somebody in class? Well, you know what's interesting about that is that God doesn't send... Let me rethink how to phrase this. It's been a while since I've had to answer that. God doesn't send people to hell just because they haven't heard from a missionary. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all gone our own way. And we're going to see at the way that this chapter ends just exactly what way all of mankind, specifically Gentiles, have gone all throughout the ages, leading all the way back to Adam and Eve. People don't go to hell, the Bible says, because they haven't heard. People go to hell because they're sinners in need of a Savior, and they choose not to receive the love of the gospel, according to 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know what God does for those people? He still shows His grace to them. He reveals it through creation. He speaks to them through creation. That might seem far-fetched to you because you and I live in a materialistic society and world. I don't mean that as far as in how we typically use the word materialistic. I mean that in the sense of we are very material-oriented. We have so many things that are distracting us on a regular day-to-day basis, whereas someone in the jungles of Africa, they don't have that. So maybe, because they're kind of freed up from all the noise and the distraction and the garbage of this world, God is able to more clearly speak to them through creation, without a Bible, than He is to you and I. That's what the Bible says. 
that, again, look at verse 20. The invisible things of him, God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. What are the things? His eternal power, number one, and his Godhead. And that's another phrase for the word Trinity. The word Trinity is not found anywhere in the Bible, but it's okay because neither is the word rapture, but both are in the Bible. Three in one is our God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I love this passage, Psalm 19. All of creation reveals his eternal power. We'll start there first, then we'll hit the Godhead. Psalm 19 is the equivalent of what we just read in Romans 1. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, the earth, showeth his handiwork. It says, The heavens declare. You know what it means if you declare something? You are what? Throwing up. Yes, speaking. Thank you. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Look at verse 2. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So yes, just because somebody in a different part of the world doesn't speak English, they all speak the universal language of creation. Because that transcends language. That transcends culture. I'll show you how in just a second. It's right here in this passage. Verse 4, Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words, creation's words, to the end of the world. In them, creation, hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. Gee, what a great word picture to use to talk about creation. The sun. Day to day uttereth speech, he says in verse 2. Night unto night. Revealing his eternal power. We already talked about what the gospel is. The promise in the Old Testament, good news of a Savior coming to save us all. You ever think about this? The sun rises where? In the east. Every single day. You may not see it. Maybe sometimes it's obscured by clouds. Maybe it's a little cloudy out. But the sun comes up in the east... And it goes from east to west every single day while the earth, the world, goes in opposition to the only sun in the universe every single day. The sun rises and it lets its rays and its light go that there's not a spot anywhere in the world that is not affected by that only sun. But then there comes a time when it gets dark out and the sun goes down. That's a picture of Christ's life. He came here on this planet. He was the light of the world. And then he was butchered on a cross. And it became dark on the cross. You guys know that? When you're reading that in the Gospels, that when Christ died, it went dark for three hours. But no marvel. Because that sun's coming back up again in the morning. Just in the sun rising and setting, you have a presentation of the entire gospel every single day. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. We're going through a class on Sunday mornings called How to Study the Bible, where we talk about factors of Bible study that help you to understand the Word of God deeper. And one of those factors is looking at things in creation. The sun is just one of them. Come back in a few weeks' time on a Sunday. We're going to go over a slew of stuff that's in creation that testifies of His eternal power and the Trinity. 
The Bible says in Colossians 1.23 that the gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven. Every single day it is. To every single person that you go to school with in your family, the gospel is preached every single, sun, or every single day. Again, even if they don't see it because of cloud coverage, that sun rises, it goes down, and it rises again. As seen in the sun... But then Psalm 19 continues. In verses 5 and 6, you see creation revealing His Godhead, the Trinity. Check this out. Verse 5, which is, As a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man. Now what is this saying? You guys remember in verse 4? Look at the end of verse 4. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the what? So he's still talking about the sun here. Which is as the son, a bridegroom or a groom, coming out of his chamber. A chamber is a place where you are encapsulized. It's your, it's your bed chamber. It's where you lay down. The Bible says that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he went for a deep sleep in the tomb. And rejoices as a strong man to run a race. Verse 6. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Anybody want to take a stab in the dark? No pun intended. How on earth do you see the Trinity here in these two verses? Three, yet one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Need some help? It's okay. I got it on your study sheet. So we see here, it actually on the top of your uh, next page there, or the back of your page. Let's break this down a little bit further. So just looking at verse 5, we see, which is as a bridegroom coming out of the chamber. You know there's three parts that make up us the sun? The first part is the physical star full of light. That's Christ. You know why? Because Christ is the physical representation of God the Father. He is the embodiment of God Himself. He's the physical star full of light. But not only that, when you look at the words that are found in verse 5, you cross-reference and compare Scripture with Scripture, you see that in Matthew 25, Jesus is speaking in a parable and He relates Himself as a groom that others are waiting for. And you know what these others, what these, these uh, uh, ladies are waiting for in this parable? They need to have oil to put into their lanterns so that they can have light. Because if they don't have that light, they are not going to be going with the bridegroom to the wedding. If you do not have the light that Christ requires, you are not going to be with the bridegroom forever and eternity. That's the point of that parable. But in this picture, Jesus is the groom. And not only that, John 8, 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Next, you have the beginning of verse 6, where it says, His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and His circuit unto the ends of it. You know the second part that makes up the sun? The unseen rays affecting all of us. The unseen rays that go forth throughout the earth affecting us in ways we can't see. That's the Spirit of God. Can anybody here see the Spirit of God? No, but can anybody here see 
UV rays? Can you see all the other rays that the sun gives off? No, but it affects you. You know that one of the number one causes of depression? Sun. No, it's lack of sun. You know what's funny? Did you know that you could take supplements for vitamin D, but your absolute biggest, you know, vitamin D is one of the one supplements that it's not, you can't get it really in food. Eggs are the best way, but it's a very, very tiny portion of it. You know what you need in order to have your life affected for the better? You need to get out and you need to be in the rays of a sun. That is going to boost your vitamin D levels to no end. And you'll be in a better mood. You'll be happier. It actually is good for your health physically, mentally, emotionally. Can't see it, but man, does it have an effect on you. Genesis 1-2 says the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, just like the sun rays go forth from the end of heaven and the circuit unto the ends thereof. Isaiah 40 says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and made it, or measured out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who did all these impossible things? And in the very next verse he says, who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor hath taught him? The Spirit of God is always moving. The Spirit of God goes throughout the ends of the earth, constantly talking to people, constantly talking to people during Bible studies, during those conversations you're having with friends in the hallway or in study hall or at the lunch table or after school. That's the Spirit of God moving, stirring in their heart, working in their lives. But next... The third aspect of the sun, it's not just the physical star, it's not just the unseen rays, but it's the unseen heat felt by all. That's God the Father. The Bible says again in Psalm 19.6, there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Deuteronomy 29.24 says, Even all nations shall say, Wherefore hath the Lord done thus unto this land? What meaneth the heat of this great anger? Talking about God the Father there. And Hebrews 12, 29 says that our God, He's a consuming fire. You see, right there, you have all three persons of God revealed in the three parts of one Son speaking to us, revealing who God is. Man, God's not left Himself without a witness. He has reached out and spoken to each and every single person. Every single person has an opportunity to receive the gospel on this planet. You know what that tells me? He doesn't really need us. But He wants us. He wants to work with us because especially in this culture where we are so material-driven... He needs us to be a special messenger with a special message, with a special revelation to reveal to them these things so that they too can receive the gospel. Again, we're answering the question, why does man need to be saved? Power of God is found in the gospel. Therein is found the righteousness of God. But it's also revealing the wrath of God upon mankind because of something. Now why again? Reread the end of verse 20 with me. 
He does all of these things. He speaks in this way so that, you guys looking at 20? They are without excuse. Why? Verse 21. Because that, when they knew God, when they heard these things, just as many of you are probably hearing these things for the first time, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. We're entering into now what is bringing upon all of the earth the wrath of God. When people hear and see these things, whether in creation or from you and me going out and showing them what the Bible says, when they know God or they know what is expected of them, they know about the righteousness of God and what He requires of them. If they choose not to respond, if you choose not to respond, you enter into a series of cause and effect. And that's how he ends this chapter. Cause and effect. We're about to look at three series of cause and effect. But look at your outline here. Letter B. If man creates his own idea of who God is in defiance to who God says he is, then God gives mankind over to the wicked desires of his heart. Cause. You don't respond accordingly. Effect. Don't expect God's hand of blessing upon your life. That goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Obey me, you'll get a blessing. Disobey me, you'll be cursed. It's the same thing here. When God speaks and reveals Himself through creation, when God reveals who He is through the preaching of His Word, through the Gospel, the power of God unto salvation, and when mankind chooses to not submit to that, the effect is disastrous. Look at verse 23. Again, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God. They made God less than. They put God onto man's level, if not lower. Four-footed beasts, creeping things. It's evolution. Look at verse 24. Wherefore, God also gave them up. That's the effect. Verse 23 is the cause. Verse 24 is the effect. God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. That's cause and effect number one. Verse 25. Verse 2. Or I'm sorry, uh, cause 2. Who changed the truth of God into a lie. Notice it doesn't say that they changed the truth about God. They changed the truth of God. When you start tampering with the truth of God's word, an effect is coming. They changed the truth of God into lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now for this cause, verse 26 Here's effect number two. God gave them up. 
unto vile affections. Oh boy. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. What does that mean? Well, he gives you more of the story in verse 27. Let's keep reading. It'll make sense. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves the recompense of the air which was meat. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this before, but I remember when uh, I would go around sharing my faith with others in school, people would be like, man, you should read the New Testament a lot more. It's a lot more lighter. <laughs> the Old Testament is the judgy part of the book. This is the most renowned New Testament book in all of the New Testament. This is Romans chapter 1. This is the very first chapter where God is revealing His righteousness. He's revealing that the wrath of God is unleashed for all of those who live in their unrighteousness. And this is one of them. What is he saying here? Look at your outline. In point number one, we have all of the causes. Man is always trying to bring God down to his level and lower to numb the reality that one day they will have to answer to him for their sin. We still haven't read the third cause and effect yet. But let me just say this. He highlights homosexuality. And really, when you look at the word itself, when it talks about they changed their natural use, that word change is talking about a metamorphosis or a transforming of yourself. That's what that word changed means there. He's highlighting that there, but oh, don't worry. He's going to list a whole bunch of others here to end this or bring it to a close. But let me just say this. As you're about to soon see, although he's highlighting this, he's highlighting it for a reason. But it doesn't matter if you're caught up in homosexuality or transgenderism or if you're a pathological liar. Both are unrighteousness. And God and His wrath are upon both altogether. It doesn't matter whether you fornicate as a man with a woman or a man with a man or a woman with a woman. Both are unrighteous in God's eyes. It does not matter. The reason why he singles this out is to show in point number two that when you reject God's truth and eliminate Him from your mindset, it will eventually lead to immorality and perversion. You should look into a study of many religions of the Gentiles, because that's what this chapter is all about. Look into many of the religions that have started around the Gentiles. Even some of what, I'm using the word Christianity, quote-unquote, very loosely. For those of you who have been here with church history study, some of the Christian sects in history and a lot of the Gentile religions, how much of it revolves around fornication, all kinds of immorality, rape, incest, perversion of all kinds, pedophilia, bestiality. When you choose, as many Gentile religions have, 
to take God and instead of bringing man up to God's level and standards of what righteousness is, and you choose to take God and make him like something to corruptible man with a philosophy or a belief system, professing yourself to be wise, but really you're turning yourself into a fool and you bring God down to man's level, you are opening yourself up to all kinds of immorality and perversion. Cause, effect. I just read it. It's kind of hard to read my own bias if there was one in there. And I'm telling you, I have no bias. I just read it. What it says, men with men, women with women, working that which is unseemly. That's what the Bible says. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over cause and effect, to a reprobate mind, a mind that is so far gone to do those things which are not convenient. Understand and let her see there is a price to be paid for unrighteousness. And this is where he gets into the whole list. So if you think, man, you know what? That's not me. That's not any of my friends who are tied into that. Well, your time's coming as we're going to soon see. And he goes through this list. Being filled with all unrighteousness. You can look at your outline if you want. I got them all listed here for you. Take notes if you want. He lists fornication. Guys, fornication is all forms of sexual intercourse outside of marriage. All forms of sexual intercourse outside of marriage. That's fornication. All forms. And he calls it unrighteous. He says, wickedness. Wickedness, it's the departure from the rules of the divine law. It's evil practices. It's corrupt manners that's even used as, oh, gee, I haven't fornicated or done any of the other things. How's your manners? Covetousness. That's a greedy desire to have more. You're never satisfied. You just want more and more and more. Maliciousness. Harboring ill will or enmity without provocation. You're just ticked off at the whole world, ticked off at him, at her, and everything. Not because of anything they did to you, just because you are. Because you need more sunlight. <laughs> full of envy. This just means full of jealousy. You want what others have. Murder. You know what's interesting about murder? It's the end result of maliciousness if you let maliciousness go unchecked. Debate. Ugh. That's contention in words or arguments. Each endeavoring to prove one's own opinion true over another person's opinion. It's causing controversy. It's always stirring up controversy. Are you a controversial person who's always just causing drama, always getting in the middle of things that you ought not to be in? You're a debater. Deceit. It means literally catching or ensnaring. It's tricking. Quick story on this. We had an email came, come across, which it's weird. I never, ever get these emails. BOGO. Buy one, get one Chipotle. Oh, that's a good deal. I, we tried redeeming it, putting it on our app, and it wouldn't show up. So I'm like, all right, I'm running the risk, but I'm going to go get my food. I take it in, and I show it to the owner. I was like, like, hey, I got this email. You clearly see it. When I click on the link, it takes me to my app, but it doesn't give me the redeeming code. And the manager's like, oh, dude, that's weird. You know what? Uh, go ahead and get your food. I'll go ahead and just redeem it on here, and you're all good to go. I was like, oh, cool. So I got to buy one, get one. It was awesome. And just yesterday, the thought popped in my head. You know, I still have that email. I could go down to the Chipotle in Maslin 
and show the exact same thing to them. And I could leave here at church tonight and go to the one in Jackson and do the same thing if I wanted to. Now, here's the thing. Technically speaking, I'm not lying. I got an email. I click on it. It's not taking it. You have an email here that says, I have a BOGO. Technically speaking, I'm not lying. It's deceitful, though. That was something that happened just this week that I actually entertained. I was like, man, I could actually do that. And I'm debating with myself. And, I'm, and then I realize, that's well, not really me. That's causing the debate. It's the Spirit of God telling me that'd be wrong. Hmm. So this happens to me, too. This happens to me. Malignity. That's bad character. Whisperers. One who tells secrets. Do you tell other secrets? Are you a gossip? You're right here in Romans chapter 1 as an unrighteousness of the Gentiles. Backbiters, one who slanders or speaks ill. Haters of God. That's self-explanatory. Despiteful means you're full of insults and, spite and, and spiteful towards others. You're proud, appearing as above others or arrogant. Man, boasters. That's a bragger. You know what another word for a boaster is? A pretender. Pretending to be righteous. Pretending to have the power of God, but denying the power thereof. Inventors of evil things. Disobedient to parents. That's every single one of you guys on here for sure. So you see? You're included in this list. You're included in this list of unrighteousness. Without understanding, not standing under the authority of God. Covenant breakers, that means unfaithfulness. Without natural affection, hard-hearted towards kindred. Implacable, that means you have the inability to be appeased. Nothing satisfies you. Even if something gets rectified, you're still angry. You're still ticked off. You are constantly at odds with things. Unmerciful. Cruel, inhuman. Wow. Paul starts this thing off on a fiery note, talking about the sins of the Gentiles. Oh, and by the way, if you're in here and you think, man, I'm so glad that's not me. I'm so glad that none of this stuff is me. I received the, the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I received the gospel. That's not me. I am so righteous with what I've done or what I'm doing. Oh, if that's you, your time is coming next week because that's what chapter 2 is all about. Self-righteousness. He paints this picture to show everyone, just like creation shows to everyone, that each and every single one of us Gentiles are all unrighteous. Why all of the good tidings of salvation prophesied in the Old Testament about God coming here in the form of a man to be handled in the hands of sinner, sinners, to go to the cross, to be buried, to resurrect again the third day? What's the point of that righteousness of God being revealed? Because right now the Bible says that if you're in here and you have not received that gospel, the wrath of God that we just talked about in verse 18, abideth on you still. Because of this unrighteousness that the entire world has all committed. 
In order to be righteous, right with God, you need the righteousness of God. God became a man, died on the cross for your unrighteousness, all of that that we just read. So that if you were to come to Him and in a simple prayer of faith, call out to receive Him saying, Lord, I know that you died to cover the cost of each and every single one of these. You will have peace. You will have His righteousness. You will have the power of God to be saved. But it must be your decision. You must come to the point where you realize your need, that this is what drove Christ to the cross. Make no mistake about it. It was your sins that drove Him to the cross, but it was His love for you that kept Him there until it was done. Maybe you're in here, and you have received that gospel just like the Romans did. You believed and you received and called upon Him to save you, but you're caught up in some of these sins that we just looked at. You might want to evaluate yourself tonight to see where you stand. But I'm telling you what, we'll end here. Look again at verse 21. Because that when they knew God, when they had a clear understanding of what was expected of them, in other words, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful They didn't respond, in other words, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Understand, and if you got nothing else, or if you're ticked off at me, or if you got nothing else out of this whole thing, or if it was confusing, there were a lot of distractions tonight. I don't know if you guys felt it, but I sure as heck did. There were a lot of distractions tonight. So let me end with this. If you get nothing else out of this, just know that you clearly got to see through Romans chapter 1, what it means to be right with God. If you know these things, but you don't respond, cause, effect. You have an opportunity right now to respond. You could talk with a leader afterwards, but really, you have an opportunity to talk with God right now. Everybody bow your heads. If you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you were to take your last breath tonight, just a couple days ago, outside of this very building, there was a car crash that took a man's life at 52 years old. Just outside of this building. That could be you tonight. Where would you stand? Where would you go? What would happen to your soul when you pass on into eternity? Everlasting life or everlasting destruction? Well, if you're in here and you are unrighteous like we just saw, it's eternal separation from Him. Bible says, we'll see in a couple weeks, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God became a man. He died on the cross for your sins and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures so that all who call upon Him, all who receive Him by faith, they can be saved. 
and you'll pass right into from death into life. You will be a son or a daughter of God. You will be what the Bible says is saved. It's the salvation. It's the power of God. And found therein is the righteousness of God. His righteousness will be upon you. And you will no longer be looked at from His eyes as unrighteous. Is there anybody in here who you would say, you know what, that's me. If I were to die tonight, I'm unrighteous. I am not saved. I don't know what would happen to me. Is anybody in here? Raise your hand. I'm the only one looking. Every head's bowed, every eye's closed. I see your hand. I'm going to ask something. Every head is bowed, every eye's closed. Would you mind looking at me? If you raised your hand. Thank you. If you're in here, like the one person who raised their hand, you could pray a simple faith. And I'm going to ask if you could pray it too here in just a little bit. And the Bible says that your eternity will be forever changed. All you have to do is just in a very simple prayer out of the overflow of your heart, you just tell God, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I've seen that. <laughs> it's what all of us are like. I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for my sins. I call upon you to save me. You just do that in your own heart. And the Bible says your life is forever changed. Is there anybody else? Maybe you're like, man, you know what? I've been playing this game. I've been going to church every single Sunday, every single Wednesday, and I've just been playing the game. Well, you know what, you guys too. If you're not really hesitant to raise your hand, again, it's a simple prayer of faith. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. It's clear to me. I believe Christ died on the cross as payment for my sins and He rose again the third day. I call upon you to save me. I want the righteousness of God to be upon me. You cry out to Him in your heart and He will transform your life. Father, I want to thank You for tonight. Thank You for Your Word going out clearly. I pray that souls in eternity would be changed right now pray you would be glorified. We give you thanks for what you're doing. Pray you continue to grow this body, continue to grow this youth ministry. And Lord God, continue to speak through creation and through your word until we meet again on Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.